0: hello everyone and welcome to episode number 20 of the trop rock 101 podcast from pirates and poets i am your host john burns thank you so much for being with us uh this episode features a conversation uh between myself and my good friend jim Hain. uh many of you are familiar with jim as a singer songwriter that performs at uh a lot of the events and house concerts associated with the trop rock community um he is a man that wears a lot of hats though uh he uh, made his living for a long time as a sports writer, as a journalist. Uh, he teaches college courses about the history of rock and roll music. Uh, he also uh, works for the VA. So uh, music is really just kind of a serious hobby for him, but it's worked out pretty well for him. He is very accomplished uh, as a songwriter and a performer. Uh, gotten to play a lot of cool gigs over the years. We talk about all that, uh, but before we get to the interview, uh, I want to tell you about a event we have coming up for Pirates and Poets. At the end of February, February 26th and 27th, we will be heading down to Port Aransas, Texas, for our 11th annual uh, Pirates and Poets Songwriter Invitational. Uh, Three shows over two days. Uh, We will have a very limited in-person audience, but we will also be live streaming all three shows for you to enjoy. The live stream will be free. We just hope that you will uh, find the digital tip jar on PayPal or Venmo and send us some love. Uh, Friday night, we will have Mark Morales doing a short solo set, followed by uh, James Sonny Jim White, backed up by Melanie Howe. That's a pretty unique show. You don't want to miss that. The next day, we'll have Jerry Diaz and Mark Morales broadcasting, uh, coming at you live from Shorty's. They're in Port Aransas, the world's greatest dive bar. And then on a Saturday evening, we will have uh, the main event, the the real signature show for Pirates and Poets. Songwriters in the Round, hosted by Kitty Stedman featuring Kelly McGuire and Dan Sullivan. Uh, Again, we are sold out in person, very limited attendance. But we will be broadcasting the show uh, free on our Facebook page, multi-camera live stream, mixed sound. So uh, it's going to be a high-quality production as the best we can do for you. So I hope you'll tune in and hope you'll send us some love via the Digital Tip Jar. Again, that's the end of February, February 26th and 27th. Back to Jim Hayne. The man has accomplished a lot. Uh, we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about the events he's played over the years, the people he has performed with, the friendships he's made. Uh, we talk about his adventures uh, not only in trop rock music but also in the Texas and Americana scenes. Um, Jim has been a proponent of independent singer-songwriters and uh, performers for, for decades. Uh, I've known the man for about 15 years, and he was, he was carrying the flag for independent musicians long before I met him uh and that really comes out uh in his compilation albums that he put together uh thongs in the key of life uh jim put out four of those uh starting in the late 90s to about 2010 or so uh if you get a chance you can find those uh used copies on amazon sometimes or uh ebay so check that out so uh, here it is uh the one and only uh and you know what He's he's normally really long-winded but he kind of kept it kept it kind of short this time so Anyway, please enjoy my conversation with Jim Hain.
1: Well, I think I discovered, um, you know, you stumble across Jimmy Buffett because I I started to listen to a lot of different music. It's a long time ago, but I was actually um, in the Air Force in San Antonio, Texas, in the mid-70s. And... um, had not been exposed to a lot of the Texas singer songwriters. And then when you got down there and you started hearing guys like Jerry Jeff and Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt, um, it just led to more uh, exploration of that kind of music. And then kind of the Jerry Jeff stuff led to uh, Buffett before the, the changes in Latitude album. So you started listening to that early stuff. And I always liked his writing. Um, and then just, you know, became a fan of his writing and, and, uh, actually saw him in concert, uh, for the first time back in San Antonio, in the old days, I think it was the old hemisphere arena, uh, opening act was the amazing rhythm aces, you know, probably $12 a ticket, but, uh, and then always, and just always liked his stuff and, and, you know, pretty much bought everything that he ever released. Um, but still, listen to a lot of the other same old singer-songwriters, you know, Jerry Jeff, Billy Joe Shaver, and they've all led to younger writers. You know, of course, you got John Prine and Steve Goodman, and the writers that had songs on those great albums by Buffett and Jerry Jeff. You know, Steve Goodman, John Sebastian, certainly in um, Jerry Jeff's case, you had Guy Clark and uh, Gary P. Nunn, and it all to me it was all just writers. You know, that kind of Chris Christopherson, John Prine. Uh, even Gordon Lightfoot genre, singer songwriters. Uh back when they didn't really have to have a label, they were just guys that wrote great songs.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting, um, those of you who have been in the buffet for a long, long, long time, how back in those days he was really only one step removed from the kind of the outlaw country guys. Uh, yeah, you Jay know Jeff great. and that
1: yeah I mean it's very similar. You listen to like Railroad Lady um, which was a co-write with uh cherry jeff and there's not much difference um, They're storytellers and you know at the time i think when changes in latitude was coming out which of course triggered the whole margaritaville empire prior to that you had come monday i think was the only radio song you ever heard um but that never bothered me i mean i I probably listened to way more music that was not on the radio than there was. And of course you didn't have the internet outlets then. So you were pretty much um, by what you could find on the dial. um, That was it. And then, you know, and uh, not having a, uh, a Bluetooth or an aux cord for your phone. I mean, you were pretty much limited to what they released on cassette and eight track.
0: Yeah, it's I wonder sometimes if some of the Texas scene and by Texas scene, I mean, i mean even including Buffett and in, in back in those days was that network of live music venues. People, I mean, Texas is huge, but east and central Texas, there's a, you know, three to five hundred capacity music hall every hour. You know, so people could could travel pretty easy and the word could spread pretty fast uh, in the old days between those towns.
1: Right, and I think the classic Texas dance halls like uh, you know Green Hall and Flores Country Store, um, those kind of places lend themselves to live music, not just a concert hall, but the dancing and everything else. And they were they were big venues, and back then you you might see Jerry Jeff or, you know, um, Gary P. Nunn and later Robert o. Keen and Pat Green, Ray Hubbard, and those guys at those venues. Um, they weren't inaccessible. Um, You know, and then before the big Live Nation type uh, stadium shows. um, Some of those other artists used to play smaller venues in the winter. You know, Chicago had a vibrant folk scene built around the Old Town School of Folk. And, you know, if your folk music scene produces both John Prine and uh, Steve Goodman, that's a pretty solid foundation.
0: Yeah. So. You were stationed, uh, and you were in San Antonio because you were in the Air Force, uh. Correct. So you probably went to basic in San Antonio and then got stationed there as well, or
1: yeah, I stayed there the whole time.
0: Ah, it's not a bad place because you were not far from Green Hall, uh, the Austin right. scene, Luke and Bach, all of that.
1: Right, and I'd been to all those places, and then I was very fortunate because back then um, men's fast pitch softball was a, a big military sport. And I was a ball player as well. So what that meant was on every weekend during the season. um, I mean, I have given up home runs in Cuero, Yoakum, Beeville, Port Lavaca. (laughs) Um, So every one of those places, though, a lot of times those weekend tournaments were in conjunction with some sort of small town festival. And all of those festivals had live music. So even though you weren't seeing, you know, what would become household names or famous people, you were exposed to really good music. And I liked it, um, you know, and then you would either buy an album or a cassette or a 45 from the band. And, and you know, that's, that was your access at that point. You didn't, you didn't go to Amazon and, and order 12, 12 CDs or uh, 5,000 digital downloads. But that whole exposure to different parts of Texas, different music, um, was fabulous. And, and, you know, you're also, you weren't much more than an hour from Austin. And even back then, there was a great quote from the, uh, uh late writer, Dan Jenkins, who kind of said that period of Austin made Berkeley look like a Boy Scout camp. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I would go up to Austin as often as I could and see bands and music and different venues. And out in Fredericksburg, they had something called the Great Luckenbach World's Fair. Went to that. I mean, it was just basically exploration um, and an entirely different type of musical culture than I had been exposed to. Um, you know, when you come out of Wisconsin, everything sounds like a polka. Uh, some of that Texas stuff was pretty good.
0: Yeah, I wonder if uh if Buffett ever played like Green Hall. I'm I'm pretty sure I've seen programs from where he played Armadillo World Headquarters, but I wonder if he ever played like Green Hall.
1: I don't know. Um, but yeah, we we would go to the Armadillo, uh, which was just such a unique place. I mean, the people who've never been there had not been there, and of course that led into you know, um, Doug Somm and the Douglas Quintet and. Rusty Weir and uh, trying to think. Well, of course, certainly Commander Cody, who I believe was the house band at the at the Armadillo for a while, and all of that has continued. I mean, you still. Um, I'm fortunate that um, uh, one of the offshoots of my writing is somehow I end up teaching this class in Wisconsin called the History of Rock, uh, basically it's called Rock Music Roots and History, and you try and bring th- bring things up from the history of rock and roll into the contemporary times. And we had talked about the Eagles, of course, and the Beatles. And then, oh, during the last semester, actually showed a new song called Bad Trick by Ray Wiley Hubbard to a rock music class because Dringo was playing drums and Joe Walsh was on slide. Oh, wow. So it was a fabulous song. But to me, you know, Ray Hubbard's like this mystic genius and and far a farm as, as well known as up against the wall redneck mother as it's not one of his it's far from his best writing but it was to show he's still contemporary and you can write and how that writing has made an impact across a wide range of genres i mean you don't get guys like ringo joe walsh chris robinson from the black crows and don was on base if you're some texas bar unknown i think there's a yeah. level of appreciation for that kind of writing
0: yeah, and uh, who, it wasn't ZZ Top. Uh, oh, Rodney Crow did something very similar a couple of years ago. I think it was Rodney Crow, where he, he had a bunch of rock and roll legends backing him up on, uh, on a couple songs on his last record. I can't remember the name of the song right now. But it's it's something that those those guys that kind of broke out in the 70s and 80s, in the Texas scene, you realize that they have this respect from what the world thinks of as, as true rock and roll gods and so on
1: yeah i mean um about i want to say three or four years ago don henley did a solo album called Cass county that is just phenomenal and his uh the musicians on that and the 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 um, other singers i mean they include everybody from vince gilda to, to mick jagger and it's, it's, it's very much an Americana album, you know, and right. that's that Texas outlaw country. It depends what you call it. Um, I always remember Steve from talking about surviving the great progressive country scare, um, which was another name for it, but you know, Americana music, Texas music, you know, I got the red dirt sound out of Oklahoma and I just liked it all. I mean, I kind of absorbed that stuff and there, and there's a lot of them are, they're just good writers.
0: Yeah, so I want to bring this back around to to the Buffett and the Parrothead stuff. Um, Actually, before we go there, you may be able to answer this question. Jerry Diaz and I got to talking a couple weeks ago on a car ride, and both of us are fairly certain that David Allen Coe and Buffett had some kind of feud going on for a while. But we can't remember anything about it. Do you know anything about that?
1: I don't know if it was The Feud, but isn't there a, a David Allen Coe song that J- Jimmy Buffett doesn't live in Key West anymore?
0: Something like that. I, we um, couldn't remember. David,
1: David Allen Coe veered off into an album called Compass Point, um, which I could probably turn around and dig through the seas in the record collection behind me and hold up the cover. But he's dressed like <laughs> a pirate, and I believe it's got a nautical chart on the front and that was i think maybe the divers do it deeper song and some other stuff but there is a david allen cole song which i actually believe it's called jimmy buffett doesn't live in key west anymore so whether there's a feud or not i don't know um, you know from what you hear david allen Cole feuded with everybody
0: <laughs> i don't know how we got off on that we, we were driving down to galveston a couple of weeks ago and we got off on a david allen Cole tangent mary was trying to tell us that he wrote please come to boston we were going no no but uh, Anyway, that led to that, and then I'd forgotten about it, and then I was like, Cuba Hayden knows every wild out there story in the world. He might know something about this. So I'll have well, to I'm not that sure.
1: Up. I'm not sure. Sh- I, I, I just, for some reason, I
0: remember that song. Yeah. Jimmy Buff. I'm going to write this down. Doesn't live in Key West anymore. I wonder if that's what inspired Brent to write. Uh, but that, Living yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's uh, a... <laughs>
1: It's a David Allen Coe song. Jimmy Buffett doesn't live in Key West. You can find it on YouTube, just like everything else.
0: Yeah, I have to look that up. And uh, I will link to that, folks, from the show notes from this episode, if you want to check that out. So anyway, at what point did you kind of become involved with, I'm guessing that you probably stumbled on a Parrothead club somewhere, and that kind of got you into the scene? Or how did you get into the more organized world of Parrotheads and eventually trop rock music?
1: Well, first off, I don't think there is such a thing as the organized world of parrot heads. I think that's, <laughs> that that <laughs> might be giving them a lot of credit. Um, there's there's a structured uh, <laughs> world of parrot heads. Um, I'm not sure about organization, but um, you know, I really didn't at first. Um, I was like anybody else. I was a uh, you know, I liked music. I was a legend in my own shower, <laughs> and. Uh, just had picked up a guitar Uh, nobody in my family had ever seen me I wasn't in choir or anything Uh, and obviously if you've heard my my music you you know I wasn't in choir or any kind of vocal anything but I I picked up a guitar and like anybody else you know you learn those first three chords and and then you start listening to stuff on the radio and you're kind of like well geez I could write that anybody could write that and so I wrote a couple of songs and entered a songwriting contest. Ironically had gone down to see some friends of mine, a guy that I played rugby with was in a kind of a, fifties uh, and sixties rock band. And they had a poster on the wall and I entered the songwriting contest. And I did, I had written two songs. So I entered, um, got a call that, um, got to the next round, uh, needed more songs. So I wrote three more, and then I got to the finals and somehow won it. And next thing you know, it's a gig at Summerfest. It's a, enough time to do a demo. About six weeks later, it's uh, opening for Jerry Jeff, and then you're just kind of going. But the early songs you learned that I learned were songs I liked, and a lot of those were Jimmy Buffett songs. So I probably played in public a couple times, um, including some badly played Buffett songs in my set list, before I, I stumbled on you know, the local parrothead club came later. Um, I might have actually played in Key West before I really stumbled on the Milwaukee Parrotheads.
0: Oh wow! Going back to the songwriting contest, anything come that came out of that contest still in the the set list today?
1: Humanity Night. Wow, that it's... was that was one of the the later ones I wrote, and I, I really don't. Um, I did a demo tape called the, uh, I don't even know the year, 1991 Clerical Error Tour. <laughs> and when people ask, how did you end up winning the contest, uh, the, the statement was it had to be a clerical error. So got some studio time. And ironically, I, I, I don't know even how it, there wasn't um, anything real tropical on there. Um, and I can't remember. I'd done a song at one point called Bimbet de jour. That might've been in that mix, but it, it came later. Um, but somehow that cassette tape ended up in the hands of, uh, oh, I got a call. I was covering high school basketball tournament season. I'd been gone for about three weeks. And uh, my wife said, "Some somebody named Ruth Nunn from Oklahoma is looking for you. Well, I had no idea. I'm thinking... You know, I'm thinking, do I owe anybody in Oklahoma money and did not, did not ring a bell. So I called the number and the guy answered and, and I said, is Ruth Nunn there? And he said, oh no, she's out on the ranch. And uh, I said, okay, well, I was just returning a call and he goes, well, I'm Gary, her husband. You know, even, even as slow as I am, it started to click. I'm like, are you Gary P. Nunn? he goes, yeah. And he said, oh, you're the uh, sports writer guy from Wisconsin. We got a demo tape that you did. I like your songs. You want to come down and play my festival? And I don't know about you, but I was pretty quick to respond. Yes. I mean, that was, that was.
0: Yeah. You jump on that opportunity.
1: Yeah. So uh, I did, but that was all, that was just a little 11 song guitar vocal demo cassette with no overdubbing, no anything. It really wasn't very good, but the songs were kind of the starter. You know, it was, you can tell they're my songs. It's the way I think. Um, I think my writing's evolved. I don't know if it's gotten any better. It's gotten weirder, but, um, <laughs> but even back then there was some odd stuff. Um, and it just kind of evolved. And, and, you know, the Buffett stuff was, it had an audience. There were very few people, especially in Wisconsin, playing any Buffett music. And if you could play an entire set of it, you could get a gig at a yacht club or a festival or something. So for, I don't know, eight or nine years, I played with a very good guitar player named Kevin Malvena, who was the best Harry Chapin tribute artist I've ever seen. And uh, that's what we did. And that's how we got to Meeting of the Minds and uh bay and a couple of the Parrothead festivals. And that led to more festivals. And, um, you know, I guess if you... If you're persistent and you write good cover letters and you uh, show up on time, you continue to get hired.
0: Yeah, and both you and Kevin ended up with a cut on the Boat Drunk's debut album.
1: No, no. Well, oh, yeah, the first album, yeah. We each had one. And then Kevin, I think, had one on their cover of the tracks, too. Um, but like I said, if you've never uh, – Kevin's a good writer as well, uh, as well as a good guitar player but if you want to hear somebody do Harry Chapin as close to Harry Chapin as as ever, it's, it's Kevin. So, you know, I learned a lot from him. Um, Found out what worked for us, got some, got a nice niche. And then, uh, you know, he was doing his family stuff. I was doing mine, my work, and we just kind of went our separate ways uh, musically. And and, um, I like doing it. Um, I could often combine sports writing trips or family trips with some music or, you know, a little bit of getaways and uh, just continue to plug away at it. And uh, I said, I got a, you know, pretty good niche. I'm pretty fortunate. Um, and then you go, you know, that really back then, um, 19, late nineties, there wasn't what you would call a, a trop rock scene of any kind um, because you would stumble across other other songwriters and a lot of it was who you'd see on the road or at a festival right or hear about hear rumors of because you didn't have websites you didn't have you know nobody was tweeting out their gigs or uh, their facebook page or anything that didn't exist and so i probably had 50 cds rattling around on the floor of my van and you'd pick them up and listen to them And a lot of them were the local ones you got from people and so many of them had one killer song and then 11 atrocious ones. <laughs> and you'd start to think, wow, you know, these would be great if they're all together. And it just kind of evolved into a project. And I told my wife, you know, don't look at the checkbook. We'll be fine. End up getting the artwork from a woman in Florida and, and produced. I think the first thongs in the Key of Life compilation came out in 1999. And nobody knew who Brent Burns was uh james white a friend of mine had seen him in the caymans and sent me a couple of cassettes i'd heard of john reno uh, because he did a college he was doing a college show called something like pirates poets and margaritas yeah and uh my kids were little and we drove well over 100 miles to see him at a at a noon hour show at mchenry community college in illinois otherwise i'd never met him in person and so we put together this cd project and it it proved to be pretty successful. I mean, you had bands that no longer exist like St. Somewhere, Matt Hall, and of course, Quincy H was part of that. Um, Mango Mango uh, had some great solo writers. I think at the time I had met Jim Morrison on vacation in Florida and he had just come out with his second CD, uh, Bocanuts. Um, So I wrote, you know, uh, had gotten some advice on how to to get the uh, licensing agreements, made sure that the writers got their songwriting royalties and that they kept any digital download rights. Um, It was basically for exposure and it was good music. Those guys, there were some good songs on there. And uh, I was in Texas at Larry Joe Taylor's festival. And I got another call from my wife said MTV's looking for you. MTV. And they, they had gotten the CD and on. And back then Amazon was in its infancy as well. And I sent them one cd i got permission to send one cd and i was very excited and shortly after i got an email back they wanted two and i thought this is great and about four days later i got an email saying we need 200 of these and um it went like that we would put stickers on my kids and i would take a wagon little red wagon full of cds and envelopes and boxes up to ship to amazon Wow, um, so you know you're not talking Warner Brothers, but the first volume sold about eleven thousand.
0: Dang, I didn't realize you you pushed that many that's units. Un, wow
1: that's unheard of by local standards. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know there weren't a lot of digital downloads either right and and the artists themselves could sell it at their gigs. Um, Disney called and got twenty four copies to play at their lagoons because there was no offensive lyrics. And then we donated money, I think 50 cents from every CD sold, went to the education fund of a lake schooner here in Milwaukee to bring kids out on the water. So it did some good, um, you know, introduced people to Brent Burns was on there, John Reno, uh, Michael C. in Island Fever, James White, Jim Morris, Danny Morgan. You know, I'm not sure who else off the top of my head, but nobody'd ever heard of these outside their region. So it kind of opened some eyes and, 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 got some exposure to some really good writers and then of course that led to volume two volume three volume four and by the fourth volume you know the the cd sales had started to drop like any other cd sales because you could download stuff and they all served their purpose and did well um and i think they did well for the artists um well worth doing but that's kind of you know that was evolving along with The Parrothead music scene, which evolved into TROP rock, you know, by offshoot of the Margarita Mafia. You know, I think Bertie Higgins was the one who came up with the phrase TROP rock. Um,
0: I've heard so many different people say they came up with it. And and truth is, it's probably more than one person came up with it.
1: Yeah, but I think there was actually he uses a marketing thing. You know, Bertie Higgins is the uh, Key Largo singer. Yeah. He had that whole pirate theme going on his... Album cover. And it wouldn't surprise me that back in the '80s that he used that phrase.
0: Yeah, I, I want to go back to th- to the thongs albums for a minute, and I'm not sure we ever the the albums were called Thongs in the Key of Life, right? Right, which was a
1: parody of the Stevie Wonder album Songs in the Key of Life. Um, had some problems with a local artist uh, who wanted to put a uh, you know a woman in a, a thong bikini on the cover. And I had a friend of mine who was a marketing person, female my age, and said, you know, there's a lot of people that don't think that's funny. Um, And if you want to alienate half the checkbooks right out of the chute, go ahead. So I had been on vacation in Cedar Key, Florida, met an artist, went to a gallery and bought some prints from a woman named Carol Sacalarios. And I called her up and said, hey, you know, I'm doing this. Could I uh, could we get the rights to your artwork? And she's yeah, we worked out a deal, and part of that included her being able to sell the CDs in her gallery. And she sold, you know, she'd get 25 boxes at a time, and two or three weeks later, you can I get 25 more. And so there were also a bunch of little beach boutiques around the country that sold them,
0: you know, in wow. their gift
1: shops and whatever. Yeah. Um, actually had an offer of a trade out to put a new brand on it, and uh windjammer cruises would distribute it to every one of their passengers. And I would get, I don't know how many cruises in exchange, but Windjammer didn't have any ports that they embarked from in the U.S. So you had to fly to get to wherever they were leaving from. (laughs) And I had little kids. I mean, they might as well have said, you know, if you can get to Mars, we'll let you sail for free. So I didn't do that. Um, But it it generated a lot of interest. Um, Looking back, probably it was a much better business plan and much better product than I'd ever anticipated and probably more than I realized.
0: Well, I just want you to know that so many people that I've talked to pretty much anybody who was involved with Trap Rock before 2010. So I'm talking Brent and Jerry and James. Um, they've all talked about how important those albums, were, especially the first two back before any kind of social media, they, a lot of them didn't know each other existed in until they you know you you said hey james i want you to be on the cd and james didn't know that brent and jerry existed until or something you know something along those lines right right. it was almost social media for the musicians and the fans before there were social media
1: (laughs) yeah it was very much a word of mouth kind of thing and you would talk to somebody at a at a gig who say i saw this guy or this band somewhere else and then you know, you had to hunt them up. I mean, at that time, you could search for them online, but most of them didn't have a website. You did like anything else. You, you Some of them, you called the white pages. You know, the directory assistant said, do you have a listing for John Reno in Alabama? And you would find them. And so wow. I followed up a long way, a lot like that. I think I first met Jerry. Uh, he and Mary took the ferry over. We were, Kevin and I and Howard were playing at, you know, Howard Gollum from the Boat Drunk's. Uh, we knew Howard before the uh, boat drunks ever existed. Um, we met Howard at on vacation in Putin bay. We heard this harmonica coming out of the audience and we it didn't take a genius to realize it wasn't either one of us. <laughs> and it was Howard on vacation. So we were at, th- at riddles in the sand. And I think Jerry and Mary and somebody else came over just to, as part of the audience. Yeah, That's where I met them. I mean, I knew of Key West, the band. And then certainly the evolution through Hannah's reef, um, you know, and, and so from a musical standpoint, uh, you found people and then you kept in touch with them and then there more were added. Um, you know, and at some point you still sought out unique writers, different writers, uh, people that told their stories in unique ways. So you weren't offering just the same old derivative and, but it ran its course. Um, I mean, I think off the top of my head, you could probably put together, somebody could put together a brilliant Thongs 5 based on newer stuff. Um,
0: but it's probably not worth it money-wise.
1: It, it was never worth it. It was never the intent to make money as much as just to do it. Um, but by the same token, each of the writers was entitled to the songwriting royalties like they would on, you know, if K-Tel brought their record. Right. You know, I mean, it's not the same as Mac Mac having a cut on the NASCAR thing and selling three million. Um, <laughs> nobody took their thongs and the key of life check and went out and bought a Porsche. But, but it was—they were good projects, good music, good writers, and a lot of them I become really good friends with. That—that's to me far more important than the music.
0: Yeah, and and the music—I mean, you spread it all over the world with those CDs, and then eventually. You've had a a radio show for a while on Radio Margaritaville. I guess that was kind of a natural offshoot of putting together a compilation album or?
1: Well, again, it was just the interest of music. And I think I did that for almost three years. And then uh, after they switched formats, did it for um, another radio station, Ed Meyer. And it was, uh, the show was called The Three Chord Barbecue. So it blended in a lot of Americana, Texas music, as well as um, what I guess would be called trop Rock. Um, and I had some demos, I had studio releases. Um, it was like uh, kind of a, uh, an Americana version of Little Stevens underground, underground, underground Garage without the talent or the ability. <laughs> but I was pulling in stuff from all over. And, and then I would get, you know, you'd have these great intros. Uh, this is Ray Wiley Hubbard, and you're listening to the Three Chord Barbecue or Dave Alvin or Randy Wayne White, people like that to do the intros. Wow. Um, so that was kind of fun, and it was enjoyable or I wouldn't have done it. Um, I think in the archives, I have, a, you know, one of those binders uh i think i have a cd of every single one of those radio shows
0: wow weekly some, show huh we, oh it was a weekly show monthly but monthly. they would
1: air it several times a month you know three or four maybe five times and it was an hour long um and then i would you know back then you had didn't have as many options certainly you didn't have facebook So you had a website, though, and you had some some options of posting the playlists. Um, Pretty well received, actually, you know, in hindsight. And there was a lot of, uh, I had a slogan. uh, I had an artist friend came up with a logo for that. And the slogan said, 3 Court barbecue, music too good for regular radio.
0: (laughs) I like it. That's good.
1: Hey y'all, this is Kitty Stedman from Drop Dead Dangerous. I want to thank you for listening to Trop Rock 101 podcast with Pirates and Poets. Pirates and Poets is a crucial platform for independent artists and writers, and they have been working tirelessly to make sure that we make it through this difficult time. Please show them your support as well by visiting piratesandpoets.net slash store or piratesandpoets.net slash donate. Cheers, y'all.
0: So, uh, one more, uh, question kind of really on the on the historical aspect of it uh i know fins to the west when they when they got started uh 2004 2005 or so uh they were really uh really trying to build a a west west coast or western united states version of meeting the minds back then and i know you helped a lot with the music uh selection and coordination and everything how do you get i mean how does a guy from wisconsin end up helping with an event in arizona
1: well I can remember it was the year that um, there was something going on with one of the hotels, and I was at Party Gras. And I believe the hotel headquarters that year were the Mont Leon. And they used a TGIF on one of those streets as, as part of the venues. And I had met people at Meeting of the Minds and elsewhere, and uh, Pete Ferralli and Patty Kahanic came up and said, um, what would you think if we started like a Meeting of the Minds type festival in uh, Laughlin, Nevada? And I remember distinctly saying, are you crazy? <laughs> um, but we got invited. It was small. You're outside. It's 100 some degrees. They had one shade tree and a bunch of hay bales uh bob carwin was there and nobody knew who carwin was um i mean bob knew who bob was um of course but um his job was to make sure that everybody else knew who bob was by the end of the week and they did yeah um so you had a very small festival and it worked um and then part of it was i think because i knew i still listened to so much music um and stay in touch with people that it was just you know i knew a lot of people they didn't really have like a musical director and i only did it for a year or two where i i mean i always helped them out or answered questions but it was able to get different people and the same thing kind of happened with a festival in michigan called cheeseburger in caseville Uh, i got invited there wasn't going to go and then they said we have to come your names in the brochure and I got over there, and it was, it was the, or, the original founder had seen us play at a boat show in Chicago. And when I got there, I was the only person who'd ever played this little event outside of Michigan. And I saw the local entertainment, and I saw their budget, and I thought, you know, I have some people in my Rolodex. And I think the first person they got was Jerry Gontang from California. Who probably played you know in some way shape or form the next 12 cheeseburger in and caseville so and then i said well james white and then he came up there with jim morris and then john reno and the the half fast creekers came and so and then jimmy and the parrots but th- that all came out of my rolodex at one point um just because i had the contacts and so i was able to do that you know and it wasn't about um me none of the festival stuff was about me. It was about, I like music and here's some really good musicians. And if you call this number, they'll probably say, yeah, we we can do that for a hundred dollars less than you're throwing away. So, and then it's merit-based, you know, once those, once those people got their gigs, they weren't invited back because of my Rolodex. They were invited back because they were good and people liked them and they made the festivals better. Um, and that's really all you could ask. And 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 you've seen or heard most of these people. And a lot of them, if they get a shot, if they get their foot in the door, they're pretty much through it because they're good. It's just been yeah. back then without social media, it was how do you get people to know who these people are? And right. between thongs, and the key of life, and me talking to everybody under the sun nonstop, they got to know a lot of people.
0: Yeah, that that cheeseburger in Caseville, that's a really big Thing now, right? I mean, isn't it like two full weekends? And it
1: was. It went from one weekend to eleven days, both weekends. Book bookending a um the whole week. Wow. I don't know how big it is still. Um, haven't been there for a while. I mean, one year. Um, in fact, that was the impetus for because Tom Corcoran was staying at the same guest house and that's where the song Bone Island Mambo came, based on a book he had written. And so that's the first time I had met him. I mean, that festival was so big. They could bring authors up who would yeah. sell books and do well.
0: Well, I think as of 2019, it was still 10 or 11 days. Cause, uh, Jim Asbel and I talked about it in a previous podcast. He's been in the rotation the last several years and it was, it yeah, was it's, still going it's, strong it's, in 19, I guess.
1: It's a good thing. I mean, you know, and I just, it's hard for me to keep track because, um, I'm not as probably say aggressive as I used to be when it comes to seeking out the festival gigs and traveling all the time, because, um, to, for me, you know, the music's always been just an offshoot of my writing. Um, and so I'm lucky that I've always had a a good full-time job in some sort of writing or editing or, you know, digital media. Um, and I'm also able to fill a lot of my nights and weekends with freelance sports writing, which I had done as a, you know, that was my full-time job for a long time. And I still like doing it. I mean, this week I have three high school events and uh, tomorrow night I have Wisconsin Badger men's basketball. Um, and, you know, if somebody wants, I'm not the guy, if I want a second job, Dairy Queen's not it. I, and I don't have the skills to work at Home Depot and tell people how to fix their whatever. So, you know, I balance my time with my family, uh, being in the press box, music when it comes my way. Uh, fortunate to have these adjunct teaching gigs in in subjects i really enjoy and that's all on top of a of a full-time gig so you just kind of juggle it all um like to play music but it's not it's i'd rather write than play but unfortunately i have to play so people can hear my songs because I don't have any other way to get the the words out there so i play a little bit and uh, appreciate every gig i get i mean you have know, played party gras a lot and it's it's just you are the
0: second longest tenured art well third if you count jerry but outside of jerry brent's played all but two you've played i guess this one coming up will be your 20th i think
1: so i don't know i don't know um yeah you're getting into the uh really the 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 tom brady and drew Brees of drop drop rock if uh Brent and I are there.
0: Yeah. So you were telling me earlier a story about uh, the birth of Trop Rock and Brent Burns. Yeah. That was,
1: uh, yeah. I think Brent, in, uh, I think it was the spring of 1943, um, was playing a small, I I actually think it was a bait shop, if I remember correctly. um, And uh, didn't have enough money to buy shiners, but he had a guitar. And he, uh, if he would play some some music, they would let him uh, get the bait. And so he did that gig, and then he got some more of those coastal things. But yeah, I think it was the early '40s. Um, of course, there, the most of the mu- most of the good musicians were off in the military. So um, Brent got some some opportunities and took advantage of them. You know, and that's only what seventy seven years ago. So
0: oh, so so he was like the uh, you hear about these baseball players, one-armed pitchers and stuff that got to make the majors during World War II. Brent was kind of the musical equivalent of that. Well,
1: actually, you know, if you go back and look at Brent's bio and, uh, he, I forget which TV shows he were on and maybe on the top 40, um, he had a pretty good musical career before Trop Rock. He did. Uh, and of course he is an army veteran, um, you know, served in Vietnam. Um, and I shouldn't say army, cause I don't know, man, it might've been in the Marines, but I know he was a, a Vietnam veteran and, uh, uh, one of the nicest people on the planet, um i have been on vacation my family my sisters have been on vacation i don't know how many people i've sent to if you're in gulf shores alabama go to lulu's and yes. look up this guy and uh you know he's just he's just a good friend we've been friends for a long time um and i actually don't think it was 1943 it's probably in the early 60s when he really got going
0: <laughs> i've actually uh got back there in my bedroom a uh 45 a promo 45 from one of his early singles when i when i was getting ready to interview him uh i couldn't remember the song that he had on uh i guess it was paul harvey that got played several times i was looking that up because i couldn't remember uh the details about it and an ebay listing popped up so i have this promo only copy of a brent burns 45 i spent more on shipping than i did to actually buy the, <laughs> the vinyl <laughs>
1: Uh, Well, and I want to say he had been on like, oh, the Mike Douglas show or Merv Griffin or one of those. There was something like that, too. Yeah. Variety shows of the era. And I mean, those are hard to come by. But that just kind of tells you the, you know, there's some pedigrees behind these people that a lot of the the current audience doesn't know about. Um, There's a reason why they're successful and their songs are good you know and of course brent co writes with some of the best people in nashville um he's got a really nice formula for what works for him and he's a good writer he's just a really good writer
0: he is that for sure so you uh you mentioned record collection and uh, occasionally you make facebook posts about your record collection so i just want to know like how big is it it's it's not
1: you know it's not i think it's dwindled over the years unfortunately um i don't know i think i have a there's an old cabinet behind my desk that is 10 feet long at least and the, the entire bottom shelf is just a row of albums that i can get to at any by spinning my chair around wow. i have a turntable i have a turntable behind my desk at work um and i'll listen to a lot of stuff i've and i've started to buy i still dig um you know one of my one of my favorite afternoons is if i can go to a used record store but i've also started to buy some new releases on vinyl again Mm -hmm. um i like it um listen to them a lot
0: do you uh and obviously you've you've collected a lot of cds over the, the years um are you uh, do you listen to Spotify or Apple Music at all when you're on the go or is that just I a complete no go?
1: I don't um and the only reason is well the main reason I don't listen to Spotify is because I know what their financial structure is. And last quarter thanks to BMI I had 34,000 digital streams of my music in one quarter and I got $16 wow so i'm not i am not a fan of most streaming outlets i i don't think my music necessarily should be buying new wastebaskets for the people at spotify <laughs> um whether they're gold-plated or not so um but also and i when i asked my class this how many of them listen to the radio when they drive around on their car none zero they listen to spotify and i ask them well is it set up for new music or is it music you like and it was unanimous it's music they like and my question to them was if that's what you do how do you hear new music and i've somehow the facebook algorithms have finally um narrowed my ads that come across down to journalism coffee and music and so i get probably six or seven posts you know that are paid for sponsored or ads of new music every day and i listen to most of them really and i bookmark those things in a file because there's some really good stuff and a lot of times i'll hear something and just as a cold message i'll send somebody a note saying hey you're not going to believe this but i heard this this is fabulous and um that was kind of the approach i used to find music for my radio show um and i, I so I, I do i listen to a lot of new music i can usually tell in the you know for me uh in the first 10 seconds if it's a song it's not a song i like but i can tell you in the first 10 seconds if it's a song i'll hate and I don't listen to the rest of it, but a lot of them I listen all the way through. And some, you know, some of it's lyric-based, some of it's the arrangement, some of it's the instrumentation. You know, I'd never actually heard of a of an all-girl, all-female surf rock guitar band out of Canada with a great name called the surfragettes They're fabulous.
0: Um, I ran across one, them not too long ago. Believe it or yeah, not. that's funny. So that
1: and I well, and I did that. Um, I did a musical advent calendar for christmas which was a new song every day for 25 days um played a different song every day right and i came across some some were new that had been released you know that week by people turning out new christmas music and that's usually where i found that stuff with stuff being sent my way and i listened to all of it and then you know the music class enabled me to learn a little bit more about motown and stacks and the wrecking crew and various in Muscle Shoals and find out which artists had done what. And so, you know, by touching base with them, you got a few more musical suggestions every week. Um, So yeah, it's, it's, it's a hobby. Um, And it's, I've been fortunate to, to capitalize it on it a little bit uh, with writing some songs. But if I, if I didn't pick up a guitar ever again, I mean, I'd still listen to new music every day.
0: There you go. You, you definitely have one of the widest. Uh, I don't know what word I want to use, encyclopedia of music to draw on of anybody I know. So,
1: well, my resume is not real deep, but it's pretty broad, you know. Um, yeah, and it's it's, you know, I think part of it is, um, it's. Yeah, I want to say journalism and writing, but it's also. It's just an offshoot of always being an avid reader, I think. And so you appreciate well-written anything. And And I've always been a reader of newspapers, magazines, books, fiction, nonfiction, as much as I can glean. And that led to writing. And, you know, then when you listen to a lot of music, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a good instrumental or a pop song. Um, but I also, as my 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 kids will say, yeah, you, you like those... Uh, 17 minute songs by some texas guy with a bad voice and he speaks half of it (laughs) you know i'm good with that um you know and then that's why i think um at most even at trop rock things a lot of times i'll sit in the back where i can hear everything and sometimes you come away from like meeting of the minds and and you've listened to music for four or five days and there's two songs that just stick in your head yeah um listen to all of them but you know you just you can you can pull that out of that whole smorgasbord of music and you just realize there's some really good writing um and i appreciate that i mean I, I admire what goes into it
0: so uh i got a few listeners submitted questions i posted on facebook that you and i were going to be talking and had a few people ask uh certain okay. questions they want answered uh let's kind of go behind the song into the the history of a couple of songs uh Kings of Black Velvet.
1: Um, well, I mean, it's that was started from seeing a guy, and we were on a, a trip down to uh end of basketball season down to Sanibel, Florida, got on a detour in Kentucky and drove by a, a roadside stand where they were selling black velvet paintings. And you know, the majority of them were Ellis and Jesus. Um, you know, a few dogs playing poker and a couple of the oddball, and a couple of bullfighters uh that type of stuff but the majority of them were elvis and jesus and it was kind of a you know uh, then you let your imagination wander like you had found the place where all the black velvet paintings come from and i just envisioned a conversation between the two of them while they're hanging out there all they waiting to be sold and that's really all it was and then it just got weirder because then the conversation couldn't speak for itself um and it's just the way, I, you know, it's not so much the way I write. It's, it's often the way I think, which, of course, explains my like my meteoric career success. Um, stuff like that comes back to haunt you. But, it, you know, it's I've had people say it's an interesting song. I've had uh, a minister in Iowa ask if he could use it as part of a church service. Are you serious? Yeah, because what he wanted to emphasize was that these people probably shouldn't be on the same plane of worship. Um, and I said, yeah, that's kind of it exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and so uh, uh, I think we're at, it was the year at meeting of the minds where they had the hurricane and they had to move it from the Casa over to the, what is it, the reef or the reach or whatever that The reach. And uh, a woman came up to me uh, after I played that. And was just in my face and said, we don't stand for that down here. So, I mean, but at least she listened and that's all you can ask. Yeah. I mean, if they listen, if they listen well enough to hate it, then you're doing your job.
0: And wasn't that recorded in Port oranges Texas?
1: Yeah, that was uh, a project that started. I met Larry Joe Taylor at Gary P. Nunn's festival. Um, stayed in touch and I was getting ready to do. I had some new songs. And uh, stayed in touch with Larry Joe and played a couple of his festivals. He'd come up here to Milwaukee for a couple shows. And uh, he basically said, well, why don't you come down here? We can do that cheaper than you can do it in Milwaukee. And that led to the studio guys coming in. Uh, you know, he said, I hope you don't mind. but I got this guitarist, John Inman will play on it. I was like, I'm pretty good with that. And then the bass player couldn't make it. So they got Bob Livingston. And I'm like, I'm, I'm all right with that and then the piano player couldn't come so he said well we got floyd domino and i'm thinking yeah this this is all right so yeah that was the first record i did down there in port arancis um
0: for people who don't know uh that was a good chunk of jerry jeff walker's los gonzo band backing you up on that
1: yeah yeah pretty much the uh the core of that and and they're just they're such nice people obviously fabulous musicians um it was a treat you know you go anytime you're somebody like me and you can go into a studio and you're in there with half of your college record collection that's a good day
0: yeah uh and you did that at third coast studio didn't you
1: yeah yeah jim urban's place
0: what what was the setup of that i mean i've done it we did a pirates and poets show in there a few years ago and it was set up for the concert setting but i i can't imagine that was it did you just use the whole big room
1: no the concert was kind of in another room i think that had a balcony at the time yeah. Um, this was a standalone studio. And, you know, I don't know enough to know about the equipment uh, to know what kind of board they had at the time. And, and Larry Joe's son, Zach, who did the drumming, <clears throat> also did a lot of the engineering. You know, for me, it was amazing for, to watch those guys work, uh, mixing and recording and par- playing their parts and creating stuff. Um, you know, I got there. And I brought my guitar over to the studio. And I remember Larry Joe saying, We got a we got a saying down here. <clears throat> we like what you're trying to do. <laughs> and said, So you can take your guitar back to the room. <laughs> Which I did. And then they John Inman had these charts drawn up of the songs, and they were, you know, music terms, Diamond Diamond Half Bar, telling Bob Livingston, play those little short choppy McCartney notes you did on Willie's album. And uh, then they look at me and they say, when we get to three, you start. You can count, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then, you know, that for me, again, that was a step up and it, that record did really well. And when I say that, um, if you can get a smattering of airplay around the world on various Americana or or different kind of programs enough to where you get some good publicity. I mean, that's what I mean. It does well. People listened to it and it got, got played and sold the amount I needed it to sell. You know, it's not like I'm going to be hosting Saturday night live, but it, it did well enough to eventually, and I'm ever, never in a hurry, you know, might go five, six, eight years between records. It led to the next one in um, Texas, um, which is where Colin and Gone came from um, and some other songs. Again, that was, you know, John and John Man and Bob Livingston. Uh, fabulous accordion player named Rad Lorkovic, uh, who was in town for South by Southwest. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, it led to some really good friendships and relationships and obviously uh, tapping into an incredible amount of musical ability. And then the last one I did up here in Wisconsin with some equally good players who have played New Orleans Jazz Fest and world beat bands and have been on major labels. A um, little different sound, but it, it worked. And that one, you know, when you you do enough marketing and enough envelope stuffing, and that's that's what I do. I like it. I like the challenge of marketing. And I at the end of the night, for me to sit and write a hundred letters and stuff, a hundred envelopes. It's, it's all part of the thing. And a lot of people don't like that. A lot of musicians hate that part of it. Right. And I always liked it. So then you look at the Americana chart and all of a sudden for one week, you're you know, you tell your kids I'm not high and I'm not going to be there long, but I'm tied with Neil Young. And then your kids look at you and go, who's Neil Young, <laughs> um, which takes a little bit of the luster off it. But you know, for, for to get that kind of enough airplay total, to even get a, a mention on that is is nice validation.
0: Especially if Doesn't you're doing make, the promotion yourself. That's even more impressive.
1: Yeah, well, I I, I don't it was never desired to, to lock, hook up with a you know, get a record deal or have to pay a publicist, even a booking agent. Um, because very few people know what I do better than I do. Right. So, um, and it's the same approach, you know, getting a gig is not all that different from getting a freelance sports assignment. You know, you, there's a, there's a slot and you want it and, uh, you can give it your best shot, write a good cover letter, be polite, um, say thank you. And, uh, no regrets if you don't get it, because at some point you're going to have to write that same person, another letter, you know, um, so you don't want to burn any bridges. Um, so, you know, I don't know if, it's hard to at, 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 at the level of what I do um, it's, it's really hard to imagine anybody who's gotten out of uh, gotten much more out of three chords in a hobby than I have. Um,
0: You've got some really cool stories and you've opened for a lot of really big names at that, at that hall there in Milwaukee, right?
1: Yeah. And other places around Wisconsin. Um, My friend, Peter just is the owner of Shank hall it's a music club, and Shank Hall gets its name from the club in uh, Spinal Tap. Um, and I've had some wonderful opening act opportunities there and elsewhere throughout Wisconsin, which led to other promoters. But, uh, again, it's it's a privilege, and they're free songwriting schools. Um, I mean, if you get to open for everybody from Rodney Crawl to Warren Ziva to Jerry Jeff to Todd Snyder to Robert Earl Keane uh theater shows with rick springfield roger mcguinn i mean there's just dozens of people i've opened for and i do my 30 to 45 minutes i don't drink on stage they're not there to see me but it's led to some really good secondary opportunities because of that and so and and, you know sitting backstage um watching from behind the curtain and watching mac mcadalli or watching Sonny Landreth or people like that. um, It's incredible. I mean, they're just so good. And uh, it's, it's, it's a free songwriting school. Um, And, but also more than that, it's how they work a room, how they relate to their audience. Um, You know, it's just in, it's, and you, you get to do it two or three times for the, to open for somebody and they actually, you know, uh opened I think three times done nights with Kinky Friedman, two of which we went out to dinner afterwards. Wow uh, You know, so if you know spending a, a midnight dinner with Kinky Friedman is is an experience.
0: <laughs> I, I think probably spending anything any kind of time with Kinky Friedman's an experience, but
1: yes. So I mean that's what I mean about one, I've gotten a lot out of it and two, I'm extremely fortunate. I mean just really am
0: well I, I think it's been a. Yeah, I've enjoyed knowing you and listening to your music. I've probably known of you for sixteen or seventeen years now, and we've been friends for a good twelve or fourteen, probably. So,
1: thank yeah, you for think,
0: uh, everything you've done for for pirates and poets and myself over the years. So,
1: well, yeah, I mean, I think when I first met you, I think you'd only been to prison twice.
0: That's right. It's we're up to four now. So
1: yes. So no, it's been a long time, and like I said, I've met a lot of a lot of uh, good friends, and and my stories come from the people I meet um you know um i could rate probably a a small opera on you and earl but i just haven't gotten around to it so you should
0: you should <laughs> do that sometime er, er, earl would really appreciate opera it, so. <laughs> 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 well hey we always uh close this out with some rapid fire questions uh, i don't know how okay. rapid they'll be with jim hayne answering them but but if you're ready yeah uh, i'll shoot them at you uh what's your favorite jimmy buffett song
1: he went to paris good answer so uh
0: favorite beach
1: probably the one i'm at at any given moment i'm from wisconsin so anywhere i'm on a beach is good um was just at north captiva island which was fabulous i mean i've been through the caribbean they're all good i mean yeah i would say they're all good they're all different but they're all good
0: all right Favorite song or songs by an independent trap rock artist?
1: Oh, that's a bit, uh, that's hard because there's some really good ones and they're very different, but I might go back to, you know, and it varies from time to time and I like wordplay a lot. So, and I don't even not a hundred percent sure of the, uh, all the titles, but I could listen to Jim Morris music a lot, almost any day of the week. Um, maybe because of my background, his song about the writer guy, Living Below You, I liked. And whatever song had the rhyme about the, uh, a waitress named Susanna at the only Chinese restaurant in Butte, Montana. <laughs> um, it's good writing. It's good writing. And, you know, if I had to pick one, if someone said, hey, pick a song, uh and again i'm not sure the title uh the one that just popped into my head was uh scott kirby's lucky enough
0: scott kirby is a yeah. hell of a writer for sure yes
1: yeah he is and he's you know um he, he's a uh, sit down on his stool and here's my songs Um, but that song has always resonated with me and he wrote one also about um when carl wilson died that i thought was phenomenal but they all they all have some gems that are you just got to tip your hat you know um there's a couple of them that jerry has written that i thought just the right the right millionaire country guy has not heard yet because they're good songs
0: yeah there's there's a couple dozen songs rattling around the rock world that like you said if the right country guy got a hold of them one of our friends' bank accounts would, would get substantially bigger. So Yeah,
1: yeah. And that's when you get the privilege of saying, I knew that guy when he was horrible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I know you're not much of a drinker, but if, uh, you're going to make a cocktail and listen to records late at night. What's it going to be?
1: Um, well, this probably goes back to my rugby days. Um, you could just open up one bottle of Kugels, a long neck Kugels beer. And I'm good with that. Not a flavored shanty or summer whatever or spritzer or anything like that. <laughs> Just the lineies. I'm good with that.
0: All right. And uh, you've already talked about your favorite Buffett song. What's your favorite Buffett album, start to finish?
1: I'm trying to remember what's on what, and it would have to be. I want to say uh, probably a white sport coat and a pink crustacean.
0: I, I think that if I went back and added all these up, that would probably be either that or A1A, or probably the two front runners. At some yes. point, I need to go back and add all these answers up.
1: Yeah. I, I, those, I mean, it's that early Buffett songwriter stuff that I really enjoy. And it's just a good writer. And he was a great observer of like You could walk into a bar and write a song about any of eight different people. That's hard to do. And he would tell their story and, and you could picture the guy. You know, I don't know how old the song Ace is.
0: I still like that song. Wow it's it's got to be getting pretty old.
1: Yeah, but I like that. So yeah, it'd be one of those two. I but I I think White Sport Coat probably.
0: Okay. And uh, the big question that we always finish with: uh, If you were going to build a Mount Rushmore of independent trap rock artists, what two, what four faces would you put on there?
1: Well, all that does is alienate people five and six, but. I would probably have to say Jim Morris. Okay. Uh, James White. Um, Probably Jerry Diaz, um, both for music and his contribution to the genre. Um,
0: And the fourth spot always gets hard for people.
1: It does. It does, because that's like judging a contest whoever loses gets angry. Um, and this is kind of out there but when i think about it this is the only guy who had one cut on each of the four thongs albums okay and again it's he you know but is trop rock easily definable no it's all over the place exactly and then you figure the overall scope body of work contribution to music and musicians which he's done a tremendous amount for um he might have to get his hair cut before he goes on the thing but i'm putting larry joe taylor up there
0: wow i think that is you are the first person to mention larry joe but people don't think of him as being part of the trap rock scene anymore but when i first started coming around 2005 2006 he played not a lot but he played two or three a year at the bigger events you know
1: yeah and i mean again what's what kind of writing is it you know um but he has played that he does his own music festival which is much more americana texas country outlaw country but he that's where those that's where those distinctions blur together i mean if you were i i don't consider him to be an independent artist because of his pedigree but at the top of that list um Again, it's an independent artist. I'd put Keith Sykes up there. Yeah. You know, um, I would. But is he an independent artist? I don't know.
0: I, I'd put him into the category of, for, for Trop Rock at least, I'd put him into that category of a pseudo coral reefer. Yeah. You know, well, uh, kind of like I consider Brenda Mayer, totally different generation, but kind of a pseudo, you know, has ties to Buffett in the ways that, that none of our, independent friends do so
1: correct so i mean but i mean you know i i think i think he's a genius um, oh yeah and so i like even his new stuff fabulous but again it's that distinction so yeah i i would put uh put larry joe up there
0: all right and the final question you get to add one more face this is somebody off stage radio event personnel, just a member of the community, somebody who's a non-musician, who would you add?
1: Um, well, I think probably if I just had to add one person based on everything, I'd add Mary Diaz.
0: Oh, you're the second or third person to add Mary Diaz. But yeah. you know, not
1: far behind, you could you could add uh, Pam and Earl, yeah, and then anybody who's hired me for any event, going all the way back to Alex Leist at Meeting of the Mind. Um, but yeah, Mary Mary Diaz.
0: All right. Well, Jim, I appreciate you visiting with me. Uh, look forward to uh to you know if the world will keep itself on its axis, we'll see each other in a couple of months at Party Girl. So
1: yeah yeah looking i'm looking forward, forward to that, to that. i'm uh work.
0: Be an interesting party girl
1: i'm working on my pale as we speak
0: <laughs> well it'll be uh it'll probably be 85 degrees in texas by the time party girl in april rolls around so
1: you know but there were some times in april where uh, i could go to part i could go to a music event in april in good conscience because the brewers already had been eliminated um this year they might still be in contention in april
0: yeah, on April eighth, surely they will still be in contention. Yes, <laughs> if I get lucky, the Cubs might even still be in it after we've traded everybody away. But
1: yes, you know. yeah, it'll be interesting. But again, that's uh, you know, if you're gonna have a second gig sitting in the press box, not a bad one.
0: No, well, uh, Jim, thank you again, and uh, I'll see you soon.
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you for doing this.
0: All right, thanks,
1: thanks, bye.